I've noticed something in my own life specifically. If you were here last week, I brought my puzzle back. If you weren't here last week, you got to go back and watch last week. Um, but I'm not going to throw it on the stage. I'm not going to blow it all up like we did last week. Um, but what you have with a puzzle and what I've observed in my life is obviously you have what's on the front. Like this is what it's supposed to look like. This is what you were hoping it would look like. But then when you open it up, as we mentioned last week, it's not like that whatsoever, is it? It's all in pieces. Everything's broken up. And so we ended last week talking about the story of Nehemiah where he, he had this great ideal, but man, recognized that his heart broke for, for truly what was broken, that his people and his city were in a broken place. And so he had a great prayer, God, use me. Nehemiah had a heart that was broken, but ended with a willing heart, God, use me. But oftentimes when we look at the brokenness, you will fall into one of two categories. One group of you, in regards to the puzzle, you would probably start looking through and, and your plan, your strategy to putting this broken mess back together, what was in pieces to make it whole, to restore this puzzle to what it was intended to be. You start going through and you look for all the straight edges, don't you? Right? And you look for all the straight edges. Why? Talk to me. You find the straight edge because what does that help you do? What does that do for you? Yeah, yeah. It tells you that these go on the outside of the puzzle. So you can start pulling out all of the straight edges and you know that it's your plan to get the border done first. That's many of you. That's many of your plans. Some of you have a different method, a different plan to putting a puzzle together. You start looking through for all the similar colors and you start seeing colors that are similar. These are all red. So logic would tell us based on the picture, well, you start to see where the colors go and you can start piecing them together just based on where they're at by their color. That's some of you. Others of you look at this and just say, nope, nope, not going to do it. <laughs> I had a plan, but it's not going to work. I don't have a plan. I don't even know where to start. You get overwhelmed by the whole thing. You're saying, I'm not a puzzle person. That's probably a majority of you. Now, even if you are not a puzzle person, the unfortunate reality is our life is a mess. Our life tends to be in pieces and in brokenness, and you can't just say, nope, nope, not a life person. I'm not going to piece this thing back together. So let me just talk to one group of you who are the planners in the room. You are the ones that find all the straight edges first, so you can get everything done. You have an order to your life. You have a plan. You always have a plan. You can't fathom people that don't have a plan. In fact, you're probably married to one, because God loves to put us together that way. So for all of my planners in the room, let me say this to you as we talk about plans today. You have plans and you hold them very tightly is my guess. For you, here's the challenge, to have a plan and to loosen up that plan. Have the plan, that's good. I'm going to talk to the non-planners in a second about how they should have a plan like you. But you hold yours a little too tight at times. Would you be willing to have a plan but keep it open-handed? Now let me talk to all of you not puzzle people. All of you, I don't have a plan. I just, you know, let life go, and I just go with the flow, and there's some elements of that which are good. Our planning people need to learn a few things from you, but you do need to have a plan. You need to put some things, you need to put some preparation into it, you need to put some thought into it. This idea of just whatever happens, happens. Not a great way to walk through things. And what we see is we can actually learn a lot from each other, the planners and the non-planners, that we truly need to have a plan but still have it loose. We need to put the thought, the effort, the energy, the intentionality into it, but not hold it so tightly that we can't allow God, we don't allow God to move in us and through us. Before we get to Nehemiah, let me read out of Proverbs chapter three. 
Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all that you do, and he will show you which path to take. So whatever you are planning or needing to plan, may we always go to God with it. Seek him and his will in all that we do. Have a plan, but also keep an open hand. That's what we're going to see through the story of Nehemiah today. Before we jump in, though, here's the two questions I'm asking you each and every week as we study Nehemiah this month. The first question is, God, what do you want to restore in my own life? The story of Nehemiah is about Nehemiah learning and discovering how his city and his people were in a very broken place. As a people, they were scattered all over the place. As a city, literally the walls were broken down. And he learns of this, and his heart breaks for his people, and his heart breaks for his community, his heart breaks for his city. So for you, what is broken in your life? Personally, like what is broken in you that God wants to restore? What's broken around you, the relationships around you, the environments around you, the people around you, what is around you that's broken that God wants to restore? Second part of that question, which we learned from Nehemiah, is not just... God, what's wrong here? Fix it. It's God, what's broken? What do you want to restore? But God, how do you want to use me? How do you want to use me to help? How do you want to use me to rebuild? How do you want to use me to bring about restoration? Because that is the story of Nehemiah. The story of Nehemiah is about a man whose heart was broken that God used to bring about restoration. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the story that we're able to read. Thank you for Nehemiah and his story that we're able to learn from. I pray that as we read and as you speak to each and every one of us individually, God, I pray that we would be attentive to the leading of your Holy Spirit, that we would recognize where we fall, either, either planning and holding it tightly or we're just not caring enough to plan or putting the energy into it. May we both, whatever category we fall into, may we learn and may we hear from you today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's pick up where we left off. Again, as I mentioned, we picked up, uh, picked off, uh, ended at Nehemiah chapter one last week. Nehemiah, like I said, he learned that his city was literally in ruins. His heart broke and he ended with a prayer that was basically him praying, God, use me. So let's pick up there, Nehemiah chapter one. Let's end there just to catch you up briefly in verse 11. If you don't have a Bible, I always say this, make sure you go get a Bible right where you get coffee. Make sure you grab a Bible, use it, hold on to it, bring it each Sunday, and maybe even open it during the week, but that's up to you and the Lord. Here's where we left off last week. Nehemiah chapter one, verse 11, the end of his prayer. Oh Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those, who, uh, those of us who delight in honoring you. And here's his ask. Please grant me success, and say it with me, when does he ask for it? Today. Grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it in his heart to be kind to me. And then Nehemiah tells us that he was the cupbearer. So that's how he ends his prayer. My people are broken. My city is literally broken down. So God, use me to fix it. Use me to rebuild it. And he starts to develop a plan, a plan that if he could go to Jerusalem, he could begin to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But being held captive by the Persian empire and in service to the Persian king, Artaxerxes, he's the cupbearer, so he can't just walk away. He can't just get up and go. So he's saying, God, would you allow me to have success today? When he prayed this, give me favor so that I could be used to do something great, to be used by you. So here's where we pick it up. 
Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. Next thing we learn from Nehemiah's perspective, he said, early the following spring in the month of Nisan, during the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was serving the king his wine. That's what a cupbearer did. He said, I had never before appeared sad in his presence. So the king asked me, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me, so you must be deeply troubled. Now, I want us to focus on the timing here. Nehemiah does a really good job of of stating some very specific timelines. In fact, if you went over to chapter 1, verse 1, when Nehemiah prayed, we just started with that in chapter 1, we're told that it took place in the month of Kislev. Now, that roundabout is, call it November. It's kind of that fall, early winter. And then he tells us, after he finishes praying, remember, he asked to pray for that to happen today. Give me success today. When I'm in the presence of the king today, let me be used to fix this problem. Chapter 2, verse 1, the following spring. So he prayed that prayer, God, use me today. He prayed that, let's call it November. And now we're told about four months later in early spring, this finally happens. Can you imagine the frustration for Nehemiah potentially? God, give me success today. He gave God a very specific timeline. I want this to happen today. As a cupbearer, he would have been in the king's presence often, daily, through many times throughout the day. So there are plenty of opportunities for this to happen. But he had to wait and wait and wait four months later. He finally gets this opportunity that he prayed for, but he had to wait for it four months. The timeline is interesting because it teaches us quite a bit about what we do in the waiting and what we do in the in-between. Some of you know this, many might not, but before my family and I, before Becky and I moved here to Dawsonville, Georgia, we lived in California, Northern California for seven years, worked at a church there, loved, had a great time. Um, but if you're in California, it makes sense to do all the things that you would do if you lived in California. So we made sure we visited all the places on the coast. We did Disneyland. We went to Yosemite. And of course, we learned to surf. I mean, that's just what you do. If you live in California, you have to at least try it. Now, by no means are we surfers at all. But if you live in California, you at least have to try. So we took a trip to Santa Cruz, California, known for surfing, took some friends with us who were actually legitimate surfers and said, teach us how to surf. We have to at least try this if we're living in California. So we first learned how cold the water was. So we get our wetsuits, we get our surfboards, we get all the equipment we need. And then our friend, he takes us out into the water. He begins to teach us what we're going to be doing. And there's three main elements, three main parts to surfing that you have to have, that you have to be able to do. The first one is you have to be patient. You paddle all the way out there, you fight against the waves, and you have to be patient because then you just sit for a while. Then you have to have the right timing. There would be plenty of times where a wave would come, but the timing wasn't right, so you just ended up floating right over the wave. So you have to have patience, you have to have timing, but the most crucial part of surfing that you cannot do anything about is the wave. You have to have a wave. So you could be as patient as you want. You could have the perfect timing. You could have the right equipment. You could have great talent, but you cannot do anything until that wave shows up. So there'd be so many, oper- so many times where we'd be sitting out in the water, waiting and freezing and cold, waiting, waiting, waiting. Then finally a wave would come or at least start to come. And I'd say, oh, this is it, this is it. And our friend would say, no, 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 don't take that one. So we'd wait that, we'd let that one go by. Like, it's so cold. Then I'd see another one. How about this one? Is this the right one? He'd wait. No, no, no. Let that one go. So of course that one would go. And then he would say, oh, this one's it. 
This one's it, get ready. So then you get in position, and as soon as the wave comes, he'd start telling us to paddle, start paddling, and go figure, being new, I never got it right on the first time. So then I missed that wave, and guess what I had to do again? Wait for another one. Finally, the wave would come, and my patience paid off. My timing was right, and finally the wave had it, and I was able to move, and finally was able to surf, but it doesn't look like anything that you're probably picturing (laughs) at all. And like Nehemiah, Nehemiah had planned, he had prepared, he had prayed, he was ready, and now he's sitting in the water waiting for four months. Maybe you find yourself in that spot. God, I've been praying for this. I've been asking you specifically for this. I have done my part. I have planned. I have prepared. I'm stuck waiting. You've done everything, but you just don't have the opportunity to move forward yet. Whatever you might be planning whatever plans you might be holding on to or plans you hope to have, really don't do much until you have that wave and you have the opportunity. Nehemiah needed a wave. He had everything except the wave. So even though he prayed four months later, and I'm sure continued to pray, God, maybe today, maybe today. How about today? He stayed faithful until four months later, he finally got the wave he needed. And he had the opportunity, and for him, his wave, his opportunity, was the king saying, what's wrong? And so finally, Nehemiah's like, this is it. I've been waiting for this for four months, and finally, the king addresses me and asks me what's wrong. Here's his response as he begins to ride this wave and make the most of this opportunity. The king says, you must be deeply troubled. And then look at what Nehemiah's response is. Then I was terrified. Absolutely terrified, he says, which is understandable. Thinking of when we, sur- when we tried surfing, we got so excited. Oh, I'm going to take a wave, I'm going to take a wave. And then the wave starts to take you and you start to stand up. And you're like, I'm doing it, I'm doing it. Oh my goodness, I'm actually doing it. And you realize how scary it is once you get going. That's Nehemiah here. He was praying for it, he was asking for it, he was anticipating it, he was waiting for this wave and this opportunity. He finally got it and he is scared to death. Now let's talk about why he's so terrified. Like this, this history in this context is super important just to understand what situation Nehemiah was truly in. The reason he was so terrified, remember, he's the cupbearer to the king of Persia. The kings of Persia considered themselves God kings. They considered themselves the ultimate authority. So if there's anyone that said something to the king that the king didn't like for whatever reason, the king could just say, well, let's just get rid of him. You need to be executed. I don't like you anymore. And whatever the king said went. In fact, this will give you a little bit of the irrational thought that these Persian kings had. Uh, One of this king, King Artaxerxes, one of his predecessors, King Xerxes, was known for an interesting story. He had sent his army ahead of him. They were getting ready to invade another country, another territory. And there was a piece of a section of water that they needed to cross. He didn't want to go around. He wanted to go over the, over the water. So he had his soldiers, had his men build a bridge so they could cross over more easily. Well, as it happens with water, sometimes those waters rise. And when that happens, nothing usually can stand in the way. So the bridge that these men had built got totally washed away by the water when it rose. By the time King Xerxes got there and saw the destruction of his bridge, he lost it. He first found all the engineers that built the bridge and had them all executed since they could have totally 
done something about that with the waters rising. But then he didn't end there. He told the rest of his men to grab a chain and he ordered his men to go out to the water and give that water 300 lashes with the chain to teach him a lesson. That's the kind of king that Nehemiah is serving. They're not known for being rational. They're not known for being, being very calm. Quite the opposite. So that's who he is in the presence of. Now let's pile on just a little bit more. So this king, King Artaxerxes, remember what Nehemiah is getting ready to ask for, right? He's going to ask, he needs to be able to ask, can I go to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem? That's what he's asking. That's what broke his heart. If you were to go back, you don't have to go there. I'm going to give you a little bit more than you really care to know, but this is good context for you. So the book of Ezra, if you were to flip over just to the left of Nehemiah, you're going to get the book of Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah kind of go hand in hand. They tell two sides of the story of rebuilding the temple and the walls of Jerusalem. So in the book of Ezra, this happens prior to Nehemiah. Listen to what's recorded from, from Ezra regarding King Artaxerxes, which is the king that Nehemiah is the cupbearer to. Ezra chapter 4, starting in verse 19. This is a decree, a command written by King Artaxerxes. He said this, I ordered a search of the records and have found that Jerusalem has indeed been a hotbed of insurrection against many kings. In fact, rebellion and revolt are normal there. Powerful kings have ruled over Jerusalem and the entire province west of the Euphrates River, receiving tribute, customs, and tolls. Therefore, here's his decree. Therefore, issue orders to have these men stop their work. That city must not be rebuilt except at my express command. So, are you getting a picture for why Nehemiah was terrified? First of all, he recognized how these kings viewed themselves as a God king. What they say goes. No one could say anything against them. They were irrational in their response to other people and things and situations. Plus, this specific king that is asking Nehemiah, what's wrong? His response is basically, so you know that city that your people are technically responsible for destroying and the one that you said was like revolting, rebellion, rebelling, and you told us not to rebuild it? I want to go rebuild that. Can you understand why he's a little afraid? King Artaxerxes, I want you to reverse your decree. When you said stop building, I want to be the one to go and rebuild it. So of course he's terrified. Christian author Bob Goff, he said this when it comes to fear though. He said, don't let what you're afraid of keep you from what you're made for. I feel like that hits Nehemiah hard on. That Nehemiah finally gets this wave and he gets this opportunity. And it would have been very easy to say, oh, I'll wait for another wave that doesn't seem as scary. But he makes the most of it. And he takes the wave even though he's afraid and he doesn't allow his fear to hold him back. So here is his response. After the king said, well, why are you so sad? Obviously, he was terrified, but I replied, verse 3, Long live the king. How can I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins, and the gates have been destroyed by fire. Now, real quick, I don't want to spend a ton of time on this one, but um, there's a good leadership lesson here, and all of you are in some kind of a leadership position. You might say, well, I'm not the CEO. I'm not the boss. I get that but you carry some level of leadership because you do have influence with other people and other people are following you. You're a leader in your home, you're a leader at work, even if it's just by leading by example. So all of us are leaders on some level 
And there's three really good leadership tips in here that Nehemiah is brilliant at. Notice his response to the king. Long live the king. How can I not be sad? For the city my ancestors are buried in is in ruins. Three things he does real fast. First, he's respectful. Long live the king. He doesn't say, your fault, that's why I'm sad. No, he says, long live the king. So there's an element of respect there. Second, he's very honest. He says, how can I not be sad? Here's the reality. He doesn't beat around the bush. Well, like, let me try to help you understand. Like, how can I not be sad? My city's in ruins. So he's very upfront and he's very honest. But lastly, he finds common ground with this king. Remember, this is the king that said Jerusalem is a hotbed of insurrection. Jerusalem is full of rebels. There's no way we can ever let them rebuild their city. So he doesn't even mention Jerusalem here, does he? He finds common ground. He says, the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins. Even the king could relate to that. The king could understand, I understand why you're sad. If the city where my family was buried lied in ruins, I'd be upset too. So he finds common ground with this king, respectful, honest, and finds common ground. I don't know if that helps you. If it does, great. If not, file it away. Hopefully it'll help you at some point. Uh, great leadership tip from Nehemiah. So here's what happens next. The king, verse four, well, the king asked, what can I help? How can I help you? Here's the second part of that wave and that opportunity. And like, okay, it's really going to happen. He's got to make the most of it. Nehemiah is prepared. He's ready. And here's how he responds to answer the king's question. Last part of verse four, with a prayer, with a prayer to the God of heaven, I replied, if it pleased the king, and if you are pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. He says it. That's it. That's what he'd been waiting for. That's what he's been praying for. He finally got it out after four months. If it pleased the king, and if you're pleased with me, send me to Judah. Let me leave my post here as cupbearer and in your service and send me to Judah so I can rebuild the walls around my city. Now, a couple things happen super, super fast. That's good for us to point out because I think it'll apply to me and you as well. First of all, notice the king asked pretty quickly, well, how can I help? And Nehemiah does two things really, really fast. He prays and then he presents his plan. Two very quickly. Now, what's interesting about Nehemiah's prayer here is if you were to compare that to his prayer in chapter one, extremely different. In chapter one, his prayer is very thoughtful, very intentional. It's written out word for word. It's a long prayer. We talked about it last week, the different elements and aspects of that prayer. This prayer in chapter two, we're not even given words. It's just, I prayed while I said the next words out of my mouth. <laughs> it's a Gotta really hope what I'm about to say is right. And here you go, king. Like there's not, there's not words to go with it. It's this quick, in the moment prayer. And don't miss those opportunities to pray that way. As soon as that wave comes, there's not often times, well, time out, pause, let me get on my knees, let me pray, let me get my prayer journal. There's times for that. There's also times for God help. God, give me the words. God, give me success today. God, lead me. Help me do what you're leading me to do. That's that prayer. No specific words, but he doesn't skip over the prayer. He says, with a prayer to the God of heaven, I replied. So he prays as he speaks to the king. Don't miss that. The second part of that is he presents his plan. Could you imagine how different this would have gone if the king said, so how can I help? 
And Nehemiah's like, oh, man, oh, good question. Uh, didn't see you asking that anytime soon. Let me think through this. I think that would be a little bit of a different response from the king. Like, you don't even know what you're wanting to do. There's no way I'm going to help you. Nehemiah was ready. He was planned. He was prepared. But he invited God into the process still. He had a plan, but with an open hand. He laid out his plan very quickly and clearly and quickly. If it pleased the king, if you are pleased with me, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. Done. He presented it. One other aspect that I think is maybe even the most important, and we'll probably skip over it if we don't catch it. Do you notice what Nehemiah said at first? He did the respectful thing, if it pleased the king. But then he said one more line that changes a lot. And if you are pleased with me, your servant. Did you catch that? It's not just if it pleased you, king. But if you are also pleased with me, here's what that tells me. Remember, Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king of Persia. He has no authority over the king whatsoever. Positionally speaking, he's in service to the king. So Nehemiah, no positional authority whatsoever. Yet he has gained and grown, developed, and maybe even earned personal influence over the king. He did not have authority. And so often we hide behind that. Well, I don't have the authority to do anything. I don't have the authority to ask these things. I don't have the position to make any differences. I don't have the position to make any changes. I'm not the decision maker, so nothing I do matters. We hide behind the lack of authority. But what we see with Nehemiah, with no authority at all, has great influence with this king of Persia. How did he gain that influence? doing the faithful things every day. He had integrity. He had character. Remember what the king said earlier? I have never seen you sad in my presence before. So that means at least four months of a broken heart for Nehemiah. Nehemiah still showed up for work. He served the king well, and he would go back home. He would wake up the next day still with a broken heart, and he would serve the king well. He would do his job to the best of his ability. See, there's a lesson in there of being faithful with what we've been given so that we can be entrusted with more. Jesus talks about that in the gospel, in the gospels. So what are you needing to be faithful with today? Even in the in-between and even in the waiting, be faithful with what you've been given so that you can be entrusted with more. Here's the lesson, if you want it in some quick words. Integrity builds influence. Integrity builds influence. And integrity does not happen overnight. Integrity takes time. And let me just present this. I don't know your situation. I don't know what you're in the middle of planning or in the middle of waiting on right now. But let me just make a suggestion, a possibility, hypothetically. You're frustrated because you're still waiting. Maybe God's trying to grow your integrity first. You might be flustered that things aren't progressing as quickly as you want. And God's trying to develop your character first. Character and integrity take time. And for Nehemiah, over the course of that time, as his integrity and character developed and grew, his influence with the king also grew. So he presents his solution to the king, made the most of his opportunity. Now the ball is in the king's court. Verse 6, the king with the queen sitting beside him asked, well, how long will you be gone? When will you return? 
Once again, great questions, and thank goodness Nehemiah has already thought through it. After I told him how long I would be gone, the king agreed to my request. It worked! It finally happened. He gave him permission. The king gave him permission to leave his post as cupbearer and to go and begin rebuilding the city walls of the, of the same city that he said earlier, don't rebuild. It's fascinating. It's amazing what God is able to do as he works through us. Verse 7 cracks me up. I also said to the king, in other words, I'm not done yet. <laughs> Excuse me, king. Like, thank you so much. Like, understand what the king has already given him is significant. But Nehemiah recognizes, again, he's thought through this. He has his plan. He's like, I'm going to need a few more things from you first. I also said to the king, if it please the king, let me have letters addressed to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, instructing them to let me travel safely through their territories on my way to Judah. And one more thing, no big deal. And please give me a letter addressed to Asaph, the manager of the king's forest, instructing, instructing him to give me timber because I will need it to make beams for the gates of the temple fortress, for the city walls, and for a house for myself. I love that. And the king granted these requests. Why? Don't miss it. Because the gracious hand of God was on me. Dude, you got to give props to, to Nehemiah for being so bold in this situation. Here he was terrified to even say why he was sad. And now he's not just saying, can I quit my job with you to go and rebuild the city wall that you said was a hotbed of insurrection and rebellion? Not only can you, would, am I asking for permission to go, I'm also asking that you provide safety for me. Will you in your hand write a letter to all these other territories so that I don't get attacked as I travel through them? And I can't afford to do this project on my own, so I need you to front the bill. Not just for the city, but I need, a, I need a place to stay too. I mean, I can't just work on the wall out in the open, so I need you to build me a house also. And the king agreed! Because God's hand, God's gracious hand, was on Nehemiah. You see how God's working through Nehemiah? How Nehemiah prayed and planned but then made the most of that opportunity and let God show up and do the rest. Make your plans with prayer, but keep those plans held on by an open hand because you never know what God's going to do with them. If you keep reading through the rest of chapter two, we see that Nehemiah doesn't just get what he asked for, the king goes above and beyond. The king gives him what he asked for and said, just to make sure that you're treated well, just to make sure there's no problems with my letter, maybe somebody won't believe that I actually wrote this, would make sense. He sends army officers with him. He sends a bunch of army officers with Nehemiah to ensure that what the king wrote down was actually followed. So Nehemiah gets to Jerusalem. He rides into Jerusalem, begins to survey and inspect the broken walls. The Jews that are starting to gather back to Jerusalem, Nehemiah starts to meet with them and give them a vision for what's to happen next. But that's next week. Next week is when the work begins. Next week is when the building can finally start. And Nehemiah is going to learn that he can't do this on his own. He's going to learn that it's going to take not just the hand of God, but it's going to take God's people as well. So as you're thinking through your plans, the plans that you're holding on to or the plans that you probably should start thinking through, let me give you four lessons we can learn real quick out of Nehemiah regarding plans. Here's the first one. Your plans should always, always, always include prayer and planning. My guess is you bend towards one or the other. Man, I plan and plan and plan. Oh yeah, I forgot to pray about it. <laughs> 
Or you pray about it, pray about it, pray about it, but then you don't put any effort into it. You've got to have both. And Nehemiah does both very well. He prays and plans and then prays some more and then continues to plan and prepare. You've got to have both. In your current plans, which one's missing? Do you need to add some prayer to your plans? Or do you need to add some plans to your prayer so that God can continue to direct you? Just like Proverbs said, seek his will in all that you do and he will show you which path to take. Second part, waiting. We've talked about this already, but waiting is an opportunity to build integrity and character. So maybe view your waiting a little bit differently. Have a different perspective. Yes, you want things to go quicker. Yes, we want things to move faster. We are not a patient people. But maybe what God is going to build first before the walls and before all the other things that are broken in your life, maybe he's just going to build your character and your integrity first. Maybe you need that before the wave comes. Third part, look at what God is already doing and where he is moving See, Nehemiah could have forced it. He could have walked in. I prayed that God would give me success today, so I'm going to march into that king's throne room, and I'm going to demand that he let me go back to Jerusalem. How do we think that would have ended? (laughs) Not well. That would have been a good plan, but forced. That would have been a plan on Nehemiah's timing, not God's timing. So I would encourage you, and this is a hard one, look at what God is doing and where he's moving and join him there. So often we come over here and we're like, God, 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 come do this with me. You laugh, but we do that. Come here, God, this way, this way. No, 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 no. This way. And we treat God like he should be following us. Instead of us saying, whoa, whoa, where's God? What's he doing? Ooh, let me go there. Let me line up here. I I thought it was that. It's not, it's this. (laughs) For me, I'll tell you my prayer in regards to this one. This is my personal prayer. Use it if it's helpful. God, give me the wisdom to see what you're doing and the faith to act. Give me the wisdom to see what you're doing because it might not be what I'm thinking and the faith to act. Here's the last one. Give God the credit. Do you notice that last part? This all happened. The king granted these requests. Why? Because the gracious hand of God was on me. It was not Nehemiah's planning. It was not some special prayer that Nehemiah presented to God. It was that God moved and God was working. Don't take credit for what God's doing. Recognize that his hand is working, that his hand is moving. And make sure that we give him the praise and the honor and the credit for just that. Because the promise is true for us. God's not done yet. He's not done with you. He's not done with me. He's not done with your family. I say this every week, but it's so true. He's not done with your marriage. He's not done with your kids. He's not done with our community. He's not done with your workplace. He's not done with our church. God's not done yet. See, Nehemiah came into Jerusalem to rebuild a broken wall. He was going to use stones and hammers to restore what was broken. About 400, a little over 400 years after the story of Nehemiah, another man is going to ride into Jerusalem to also restore something that was broken, but it wasn't a physical city and it wasn't just one specific people. No, Jesus came into Jerusalem. Jesus came from heaven to earth to restore a broken people. Whereas the walls of Jerusalem were broken down by an empire, our lives and our world is broken by sin. And Jesus came not to use hammers and stones and definitely not a sword. He came and used a cross 
to reconcile and to restore what sin had broken. Maybe the first thing that needs to be restored in your life is your heart. Let him rebuild that before we, we begin the journey of planning and restoring the other broken things around us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I want to leave you with this, speaks of Christ's role in us getting back to God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, bringing the world back to him. What sin separated, what sin destroyed, through Jesus, he brought it back. No longer counting people's sin against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. And we speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. That would be my plea for you. Which area of your life do you need to come back to God and allow him to restore what's broken in your life. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for how you work and how you move, for your gracious hand that is on us, just like it was for Nehemiah. I pray that whatever plans we have, I pray that we hold those plans with a loose hand, a loose grip, that we would seek you in all that we do, and that we would ultimately follow you in every way. God, our lives are full of brokenness, personally, in our own lives, and in our own hearts, in the relationships, and the people, in the world around us, and that's due to sin. And you came to remove sin, to take our sin away, and to restore us in our relationship back to God. So Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. Thank you for reconciling us back to God, not by anything that we could do on our own, but because of what you have already done on the, cro on the cross. Through your death and your resurrection, we can be restored. In Jesus' name, amen.